Uh, we have a special guest with us this morning, Saju Matthew with IJM. He's going to be speaking in a few minutes. We're really excited that he's with us today. And just for parents, you know, IJM works with some very difficult uh, situations. And so uh, we're going to be talking about that. And I'm just going to let you, as parents, make a decision regarding if you have some ch small children in here. Good morning. <laughs> it's a privilege of mine to be here and to worship with you at Parkview, um, especially because I know how generous and kind as a church body you've been in supporting the work that we do in India. Um, I wish along with uh, your pastors, Ray and Dave, you could all come and see just the amazing impact and difference you're making. I mean, truly, it's miraculous when you see the children that have been able to be rescued out, um, and then the, after the abuse, just to be children again. And that's the places that you have built and are helping to operate, and that's where girls go to for safety. So thank you, first of all, and it's just a privilege, especially during this Christmas season, uh, to join with you. You know, I think um, the Christmas reminder that comes to all of us is, wow, the birth of Jesus is the unfolding of this grand plan that God has, isn't it? It's the story of redemption that ends with how Jesus died on the cross so that you and I could be reconciled with him, be with him, which is always his heart's desire. So it is this it is this anticipation of the Advent season of the plan that's unfolding in an in, in, in unexpected way, just a baby in a manger. But I thought this morning as we think about this idea of God's plan to rescue the world, maybe we'll start about 2,000 years further back before the birth of Jesus with the story of Abraham that you find in Genesis chapter 13. Because... That is where God tells his magnificent plan of making a mighty nation from a barren couple. So he calls them at an elderly age and says, look, I am going to use you to create a nation to be a light on a hill, to set you apart, to represent the one true God, and to preserve the sanctity of God's character amidst the turmoil of all these false claims of divinity, right? To be a beacon of light. And this nation is going to be called Israel. And it is going to begin with you, Abraham, or Abram at the time, and you, Sarai. And so they set out on this journey, obeying and trusting in God, and they leave what is familiar and go to the unfamiliar. And as they do, God meets them, and he says, Abraham, you will provide a framework in which the poor will be set free, and justice is possible. And God tells that to him directly. In fact, in Genesis 13, here are the words that the Lord says to Abraham. After Lot had parted from him, he says, look around from where you are, to the north, to the south, to the east and west. All the land that you see, I'll give to you and your offsprings forever. I will make you, your offsprings, like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count dust... If anyone could count dust, then your offsprings could be counted. Go, walk the length of the land and the breadth, the length and breadth of the land, for I'm giving it to you. What an what a, what a amazing and beautiful plan, right, that God is unfolding through Abram and Sarai. And yet after 10 years of journeying along, nothing is really happening. They have no offspring of their own, much less is going to be able to create descendants as numerous as the dust or the stars? 
And so we find as the story unfolds, doubt begins to creep in. More and more wondering, and I'm sure those conversations between Abram and Sarai, is this true? Are you sure you heard God? Is this really going to happen? Do we just leave everything familiar for the right reasons? And yet, you know, the interesting thing is, God seems quite comfortable with the waiting, with taking his time. We see that all through history. We do that even in our own lives, you know. God is so comfortable with just waiting. And it actually is very difficult for me that we have such, such a situation because I like to know what's going to happen. I like to know how the plans are. In fact, because of the work that we do with IJM, we're planners. When you go into a, a, a rescue operation, into what you saw in this video, like inside of a brick kiln where there's hundreds of people that need to be set free, but at the same time, there are criminals. People who have used force and threat and committed murder, who's willing to do what it takes to stop. And sometimes even the police don't scare them. Or into these brothels, into these horrible dark chambers that we find young girls trapped in. And so in order to go on those rescue operations, we have an operation briefing. We map it all out. We have a PowerPoint, which we use to say, okay, everybody, this is what you're going to do. Minute by minute, where everybody's going to be positioned, who goes where on the IGM team to ensure the entire plan. And then we share that with the police. So we're very careful to know how the plans are going to be because it's necessary to, to know how to plan and anticipate. And yet here, God doesn't tell him much. Abraham, go. How is this going to happen? When is this going to happen? You'll see. But unfortunately, in the midst of that waiting and the not knowing as doubt creeps in and, and uncertainty, Abram and Sarai decide maybe they need to take the matters into their own hands, take more control of the situation. Maybe that's what God is asking them to do. And sadly enough, the choices that they make leads to just, unfortunately, further and further problems. Because the solution that Sarai proposes is that, listen, I am going to, because I'm infertile, the solution is that, Abram, you sleep with my slave, my maidservant, Hagar, right? And so this story unfolds where Abraham sleeps with Hagar, and then over time, you know, she becomes pregnant and as a child. And let's be clear here, as we look at Hagar, she is a victim in the story because she's under Sarai's supreme authority. She has no control or freedom of her own. She has to obey. And paradoxically, after this event happens, Sarai experiences some sort of an oppressor's guilt. And she turns on Hagar. And she begins to emotionally and physically abuse Hagar, so much so that she literally flees. In fact, Scripture says that Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. And, and Abraham was no help either. Because when Sarai turned to Abraham, he said, Look, that's your maidservant, that's your slave, do whatever you want with her. And it's in this moment, when she leaves and she runs away, that the Lord intervenes. And we see that in Genesis chapter 16. It says in there, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road of Shur, to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. You see, you start to understand as you, as you look at scripture that the God's plan of rescue is for individuals. Because 
Here's God in the midst of unfolding this global strategy to redeem the world, right? That's what he's just set in motion with Abram. And he's laying the foundations in which eventually Christ will be born and we all will experience redemption. In fact, God identifies himself over and over again as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. This is a pinnacle moment in the big plan that God had always had for our salvation. But it is also at this very time that you see Scripture pausing. Suddenly the story seems to shift to this side plot for somehow an oppressed slave catches the Lord's attention. Because it says, and the angel of the Lord found her. The angel of the Lord found her. This is a powerful statement because Hagar is a nobody on the social scale. In fact, we know from the storyline itself, she's actually irrelevant to the whole larger plot, right? The, the, the meta story. But even in India, these nobodies on the social scale exist. And we call those people Dalits. That's what they're referred to. Or in a offensive way called the untouchables. And you'll find that there's about 250 million Dalits in that country. In a country with a population of about 1.3 billion, you see a sizable group of uh, population that occupy the bottoms, bottom la- layers of, of that caste system. And the poverty and the oppression and the violence and the living outside the protection of the law almost always victimizes and create and, and makes these people the most vulnerable. Here, Hagar seemingly offers nothing to God's plan. In fact, I would even venture to say she's gotten in the way of it, right? But the angel tells her in this conversation that she's pregnant. Because further down in the passage, as we continue in Genesis 16, this is what it says, the angel of the Lord said to her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants, so much so that they are too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, you are also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. This baby just seems to be a direct result of Abraham and Sarai's sin, doesn't it? More than that, Hagar's child Ishmael is then prophesied to be wild and ruthless. And history tells us that he will live to be the father of Israel's enemies. Again, looking at that verse 12 of chapter 16, it says, He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. But I think the beauty of God's plan working for rescue is that it actually desires to rescue everyone. I actually cannot offer any other explanation for why this angel appears to Hagar by, twice, actually. The second time is to give her some water when she and her baby both run away and she puts the baby on a, on a bush away from her and waits for them both to die. 
I can offer no other explanation except the simple truth of God's great compassion, which desires to see everyone, every individual rescued. Because Hagar is that nobody, is that irrelevancy in the storyline. In fact, I would go even as far as to say, if I were the one putting together the Bible, and if somehow somebody had given me that responsibility, I would have left that story out. Right? It's certainly just the worst PR move that God could do. If he's trying to unfold a plan and call this man, you want Abraham to be, Abraham to be a noble guy, a, a guy who made good decisions and stood up, and so we could have this wow factor about him, a hero. Right? And I would have just, eh, that's irrelevant. It's not going to go anywhere anyway. Let's just leave that out. But God doesn't. And that's sometimes hard for us to reconcile, or at least for me it is. Because you come across that same lots of issues and words with Isaac and Jacob. My gosh, Jacob's entire story is a confounding story of a man that just lives in, in, in to scheme and plot to get his ways. Or even David. But it seems that God is not the kind of God that edits those things out, that covers or hides those things. In fact, he seems to know how to deal with that. In fact, he even seems to come close to people like that in times like that. And that's encouraging to me. I hope it is to you because in, in the places where I most struggle, where I feel I am, I, I, I am the furthest from the Lord and where I need even greater redemption and help just to get through the days and those things that we cannot even maybe share with others because of just the shame and embarrassment, those areas of our life, God knows. And he doesn't try to edit those out. He doesn't try to um, run away from us in those moments, but he comes close to us. And he allows us to experience a closeness and a tenderness and a care in the same way he provides here to Hagar. And what I find even more fascinating here is the way the Lord promises to bless her. He says Hagar to her blessings is very similar to the way he promises to bless Abram, isn't it? That he will multiply her descendants so that they are too numerous to count. Shocking, shocking. The Lord restores Hagar's dignity by promising her a certain status, which was the result of having large families in biblical times. And by giving Hagar the same promise as Abraham, in one sense, God puts them on the same level of importance, illustrating in some measure that they matter just the same to him. And that's revolutionary. And Jesus did that all through the New Testament and it confounded the people. The very disciples that he selected made no sense to the leaders of those days. The people that he hung around with and associated with just made no sense. That doesn't seem to add up. Or even when he tells a story of the great feast that will happen in the future, and he tells it of going to the highways and the byways and calling those that are on the outside, the outskirts, and bring them in. Right? For those that were in the mainstream, it's got to have been, I don't get it. I don't understand. You know, and I bet you as we look at Scripture, this story of Hagar is one of those that just kind of makes us or makes me oftentimes says, I don't know how to make full sense of that. It's the kind of story I know as a Christian, I hope my non-Christian friends would not ask me about. Right? Because I was like, oh, that, that, that's a little complicated to explain. God, what I love about it is, Jesus doesn't run away or hide from things that are complicated. 
He doesn't move away from that. He just brings it all together, but in some intentional, purposeful way. And I think the most evident thing here is that he simply loves everyone and desires to rescue all. And whether it's Hagar who cries or the Israelites who cry when they're in slavery in Egypt, Scripture says that he hears their cries. Imagine for a moment, Hagar, instead of being this um, uh, young, uneducated, instead of being Hagar, imagine her to be a young, uneducated woman who lives in Mumbai, which probably isn't too, too much of a stretch for our imaginations. And instead of Hagar, let's call her Saba. You know, similar to Hagar, Saba is owned by other human beings. You see, she has been by force taken from her village and somehow finds herself trapped without anyone to help her in the red light districts of Mumbai, completely controlled by somebody else, has no freedom, no police to turn to for help, people that are taking advantage of her far too powerful, locking her and abusing her over and over and over again so that she would serve customers, this young girl with a smile on her face as though that's actually what she wants to do. And for Saba, the world is as dark as the room that she's in. And I'd like to tell you a story of how IGM, in back in September of this year, found out about Saba and five other girls. And the plan that we, our investigators have done by gathering the evidence and the information and taking it to the police and working with local police to rescue all six of them. But things don't always go the way we had hoped it to. And situations happen that we that we did not anticipate, that set sometimes rescue operations to go in a direction that makes us think, oh no, is this going to fall apart? I'd like to let you hear the words of my colleague, Sanjay McGuan, who is the director of our Mumbai office, as he just shares with you in an interview that we did of this particular rescue operation on September 20th of this year. Please watch. Hello, this is Mindy Mizell, Global Public Relations Director with International Justice Mission based in Washington, D.C., talking today with Sanjay McWan, who is the Field Office Director in Mumbai. Sanjay, thanks for joining us. It's a privilege to be able to talk to you across the other side of the world. would love to talk to you about the rescue operation that was conducted on September 20, 2014. I know uh, six girls were rescued and IJM went through a very thoughtful, in-depth process. What happened? Well, um, on on, uh, on last Saturday, as you mentioned, uh, we were able to rescue six girls after a rigorous uh, rescue operation along with Mumbai police. So as we entered the police, we could not find any girl there. And we were frantically looking for these girls for nearly 40, 45 minutes. So we kept looking, hitting at walls, trying to figure out a hollow space. Finally, after 40-45 minutes, we could find one spot, which we then uh, requested the police to break open. And after a couple of minutes, as we bro broke that spot, there was about 2.5 feet wide little hollow space that we entered inside. And uh, we, we heard girls crying inside. And uh, we asked these girls to step out, and then they were crawling and coming out. And as they were coming out, they were just crying and crying. And we saw, we, we saw more than two, there were six girls inside, and they came out. Uh, yeah, so basically, 
uh, we were very happy to rescue all six of them and arrest once again all those four traffickers who, who were exploiting them. What was going through your head the moment you realized that there were really girls behind that wall? First reaction is shock. Uh, that, that how, how could you force uh, your girls like that? In fact, in this particular brothel, as we crawled inside that tiny little space, it opened into another big room, which was hidden from any human eye. And as we inquired, that room was used to break those girls. When I say break those girls means when the girls are brought new into this work, they refuse to this work. So they keep them inside that room and they rape them there. And they condition them so that when they are ready, then they bring them out where they sell these customers. Wow, uh, it's just shocking to hear you describe this. Now, congratulations to you, the IJM team, and uh, the Mumbai police officers, who I believe were also trained by <laughs> IJM. I know uh, so many people are going to be asking, how are the girls doing today, and how many are in care now? Well, uh, just, to, just to the beautiful moment, even during the rescue is this. Uh, when, when they were crawling out of that cavity, they were crying. And... Uh, and we all were like standing outside and, and watching them cry. Just after two, 10 minutes, I would say, 10 minutes, they were all smiling. As we talked to them, as we counseled them, they were all smiling. Smiling because they are free. They are free. And I would like to call it this way. Perhaps the distance between tears and smile is freedom. Sanjay, we thank you for telling us about this latest rescue operation. I know uh, so many people after hearing your words are now going to want to participate in IJM's work. If you'd like to learn more information about International Justice Mission, go to the website, it's IJM.org. You can learn about how you can donate how you can get involved with our work and how you can pray for those who are working around the world to do just exactly what Sanjay's talking about. Sanjay McQuan from uh, Mumbai, India, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Over just this past year, IJM has actually been able to rescue over 2,400 people in India alone. That's both from the red light areas as well as from forced labor slavery. I can tell you that in the process of doing this work that we've done with police and other law enforcement over the last 15 years in India, in the beginning it was very difficult. They wouldn't even allow us to come into the police stations or want to communicate with us. And now we are a trusted partner that works with them side by side, and when they have 45 minutes inside and they don't find a girl, they don't just leave, but they stay searching, breaking things, trying to make sure that they do this. The will and the resolve and the empathy and the understanding has been changed. We've trained, we're in the process of training 20,000 officials just in the city of Mumbai. We've trained two-thirds of the judges there so that they understand how the crime works. We arrest the prosecutors. What I see is, more than the individual rescues, Systemic change is starting to happen there. Permanent, lasting change. 
And you know, I think that's what the Christmas season is all about. At the core of God's desire is for that change to last, for redemption to be complete and for rescue to be eternal. I think as Christians, we use this Advent season to to reflect on Emmanuel, how God came to us, found us in our darkness in order to change the world forever. It's just really miraculous to see, and there's tremendous hope that I have. Because when you go to some of the largest red light districts, like in Mumbai or Calcutta, it's becoming harder and harder to find young girls because traffickers and pimps and brothel keepers are going to jail. They're afraid to abuse these children any longer. And that is a sign of how transformation is happening. And I think when God established this nation through Israel, through Abraham, this nation of Israel, he set up a people group who were charged with pointing to the rest of the world what justice and order should look like. You see, the systems that they put into place or should be putting into place, like the year of Jubilee, or the practice of tithing, or how when they harvest their crops, not to go to the margins, but to leave a certain percentage for the poor, the foreigners, or the tribe of priests, right? This was to design so that It would free those in debt like the year of Jubilee or minimize corruption so through the tithing process or rule justly. God had put the system of governance and order into this nation and this nation was supposed to point the way to others on how God had designed us to live in community with one another. But that broke over time and Israel ended up oppressing people rather than liberating them. And in, in India and many countries in the developing world, we see that same systems broken down. And I believe when Jesus came, he came to reform and reestablish authority where it had been taken over. And at IGM, we truly believe that the systems in place will work to protect girls like Saba from violence once law enforcement can function to punish the perpetrators, making the the risk of punishment not worth the crime. And this is the beautiful way I think God even placed Israel. Because if you look geographically on the map where Israel is located, in in the sense of commerce and trade and movement, it was at the center point. So that lots of people would have to travel and journey through there. I don't think it's just by coincidence, but strategically placed a nation at the intersection of the, the center area of society in those days. Again, why? To model and to demonstrate who God is, his character, his purpose, his vision for the world. Today, I think it is the church or the body of Christ because if you think about it, Abraham's family, that, that group set apart to bestow justice and redeem the world, is no different from our church family. He has placed us at these crossroads, at these places that are difficult to represent him, to represent what God has designed the purpose of this world to look like, how we should live and have dignity for one another. And you know what? That means that you and I, are the hands and feet that is going to send the message of the gospel to this world. We are God's plan of rescue. There is no plan B. We are an extension of Israel pointing to God's character, to the way we live, the way we operate, to what we value, the way we fight for justice, the way we care for the poor and bring law and order. 
It's not a matter of choice, I don't think. It's a matter of design. I think that is the design that God has when he established a church in this world, that we would stand in the intersection of society for those that are in need. And again, that is why I'm so appreciative of Parkview Church, because you have been standing at the crossroads of darkness and light in a city like Calcutta, providing healing to girls that have been rescued from the sex trade. And you've supported a phenomenal home. It's a state-of-the-art home that we have in India called the Mahima Home. Or the work that we're able to do through Sabha's aftercare home in Mumbai. You are being a manifestation of that redemption. So, if you think about it, I love the interaction that Jesus has with Peter in the New Testament at the end of his ministry. And it goes simply like this, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I do. And feed my sheep. And that's repeated. And that's repeated. And what I see out of that is, is that while God cares deeply for our own holiness and our own personal sanctification, it isn't just stop at, I love you, you love me, I love you back scenario. But rather, it's the process of truly being made like Christ. If we're made like Christ, then we will care about the very things He cares about. And as we see throughout history, What he cares about is for his kingdom to come, to reign and to bring justice. He cares for the world way too much. And you see that embodied in his commandments, the greatest of those, to love one another as you love yourself. We're not in an isolated relationship with Christ. If it was just you and I, he could have just taken us home long time ago. But we are his tools, his mouthpiece, his hammer of justice, as we like to say at IGM. As we consider ourselves the church, that means that we are a plan of redemption and hope for a hurting world. Many like Sabah and others who are in harm's way have only you and I to help them. So let me just say thank you. Thank you for partnering with us because Sabah and her friends now are learning words in English like hope and love. And they're receiving care from their aftercare workers, exploring new vocational dreams and going through trauma therapy. But more than anything, just being able to be little girls again, children again, laughing and smiling. So it's not a stretch to say that what you are provi- providing for Saba and other survivors in trafficking is exactly what God provided for Hagar. Maybe in the grand scheme of things, they're small potatoes. Maybe... They'll always be poor. Maybe they're not going to amount to anything that history will write about. But God notices. He sees. He cares. And you're giving them a second chance of life, restoring their dignity, elevating them to the correct status, to be daughters of the king of the universe. So thank you. Thank you for just your prayers and your contribution, for being God's hands and feet. And I just encourage you, as you in your bulletins, you'll see this prayer card. And what it is is just, I ask you just to take 15 seconds to fill it out because we would love for you to be a prayer partner with us in our work. We truly believe that prayer is the power behind everything that we see and experience at IGM. In India, I'll tell you, we have almost 100,000 prayer partners that stand with us. And that's the very reason we know we can have these thousands of people rescued. And so I would love for you to be a prayer partner so we can give you breaking news and updates and that's just an opportunity for you to know as cases like this is unfolding and just happening, how you can pray. 
Because in those moments of prayer, that's how we find the girls that we can't find for 45 minutes. Or that's how the heart of a police official changes and they'll do right or wait or be sensitive to a victim when they haven't been. So may we all just reflect this Advent season on what it truly means for God to be with us in this plan to redeem the world. For it is a plan that works. It's a plan that has worked. Let me just pray. Father, thank you for just a reminder through the life and story of Hagar that you notice. You notice the unimportant and what seems irrelevant. And the truth is, more often than not, I feel not very important or significant, and I'm sure many here do too. And it is comforting beyond all comforts to know that you come for us. We matter simply because you created us. We matter, and your love for us is unconditional and eternal. Thank you so much for a goodness and a kindness that we can never pay back, a grace that just sustains us in our times of difficulties. Thank you for the faithfulness of this partnership that IGM and Parkview is able to have and the hope that it breathes into the darkest places in India. Father, you are good, you are good, and we see that through the birth of your son Jesus and the life he gave of his own himself so that we can be with you. We will wait upon you, Jesus, in your goodness. Speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. So uh, why don't we stand together? You know, um, so many of you know I, I've been to India, I've been to Kolkata, I've been in the red light districts, and I've seen what IJM does there in the rescue op- operations, and uh, it's an amazing work, and I'm just honored to be part of it. I want to thank Saju for being with us, and I know uh, he's got, they have a table out in the back, you can stop by, but here's the deal, you know, those prayer cards, IJM, when they say they're going to pray and they ask people to pray, they really pray. And that's what makes the difference in these rescue operations. So, uh, but just to let you know, um, all in, part of our all, all in is our, our global aspect. And so um, because of your generosity on behalf of our church uh, this Advent season, today I'll be presenting uh, Saju um, and IJM with a check for $150,000 for the work in India. But that's because of you folks. So we're committed to it. We're committed to you guys and to, and to the girls. Yeah. Let, me, let me pray for us and then we're dismissed. Uh, for our Father, in this time of Advent, we recognize that, that you came for us, we who were held captive to sin and brokenness, and you have rescued us and given us life. And you've called us to do the same in our world, and that includes young girls in places like Mumbai and Calcutta. Uh, thank you for IJM and our, our partnership with them, making it, it, it possible to rescue you, these young lives, to share Jesus with them, and to see your redemption take place and change them. We know that you love them and love us, and so it's a privilege and an honor to be part of this. I pray, God, that you would be honored by it and pleased by the efforts of your people, the church. May you strengthen the workers, uh, the IJM workers around the world as they put themselves in dangerous positions and places. Watch out for them. Uh, bless them and favor them, Lord, as they, uh, they seek to rescue these young people. Thank you for uh, this time together this morning. And now I ask that as we go, your hand of grace and peace rest on us. May we live our lives this week, every day, pointing people to Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here.